Welcome to your sanity safe space with your favorite YouTube podcast duo, or at least one of them. It kind of depends and probably some rando too, but no complaining because this is free. Free. This is beauty and the beta bonus audio content. Hello and welcome to the show. Last week, I was a guest on Cozy Conversations over on the Reform Television channel, a show dedicated to hosting different opinions on politics, religion, or other taboo topics. Host Leighton and I discussed the ongoing issues of abortion and immigration and gun laws and much more. So if you like what you hear, and I hope that you will, Check out the Cozy Conversations playlist using the link in the description. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello, thank you for joining me today. My name is Leighton Pearson, and you're watching Cozy Conversations. Today, I have a special guest with me. His name is Matt Jensen. Hey, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. And it's awesome to have you. Uh, so I just want to – I had so much planned for this, and then stuff happened uh, in the news, and I'm like, Man, I've got to talk about that and that and that. So I've kind of whittled it down to like three topics. Okay. Uh, so first, I'd like to talk about this abortion topic about mm. New York and, and Virginia and how weird that's getting over there. And yeah, so I mean, I I don't know too much about it. I, all I know is about 40 weeks and something about also after baby's birth. Yeah, so when you say um, getting weird over there, you're in. Are you in New Zealand? Is that where you are? Yeah. So, um, do you do you know what the legal standard is in New Zealand? Not to flip this, but I'd be curious to to know just to yeah, compare. Absolutely. So here in New Zealand, you need, I believe, a couple of uh, of of specialists to to allow the abortion, and I think it's up to eighteen weeks. They want to extend it to twenty five, I believe, uh, but. It's definitely it's not 40 weeks, that's for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, 40 weeks would even be, uh, you know, pregnancy that's over term. You know what I mean? As she said, up to 40 weeks. I don't know what she means by, like, I guess there's pregnancy over time or something. I don't know. <laughs> that's what Kathy Tran said in Virginia. Okay, so so it's 18 to 25 weeks, something like that. Are there are there exceptions after that? Or is, uh, is an abortion I... never available to a woman after that? I don't believe it. I think maybe if the mother's uh, like a certain like death for the mother, but otherwise I don't think there is hmm. other exceptions. Yeah. So, I mean, that's generally the same standard that exists in the U.S. So, so here the Supreme Court has ruled that states cannot regulate abortion until the third trimester. They've ruled that a woman has a constitutional right to an abortion through Roe v. Wade until um, – until basically into the third trimester until fetal viability basically the state can't regulate the issue so you'll see that <clears throat> that line as the line of regulation in a lot of states and what states like new york and virginia are trying to do is roll back existing regulation on third trimester abortions in new york they've already done that uh and virginia is is trying to follow suit but what they're trying to do is expand the exceptions in my judgment, to be so broad that basically anyone complaining about a headache or something like that could still get a third trimester abortion. Now, maybe I'm being a little, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but what these laws allow for is if the mother's health or even mental health is at all uh, placed at risk 
in the physician's judgment. Not not by any kind of legal standard, just in the judgment of the physician handling this case, then the abortion will be legal uh, or can be legal. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, this is new. This is uh, if, if you've listened to me talk about this kind of stuff, abortion has always been a really difficult issue for me. And I've been mostly pro-choice my whole life with the understanding that this is a terrible decision that most women and families don't want to make circumstances may require it sometimes. And I, mm. and I'm sort of, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm really changing my perspective on this whole issue as I watch what's going on. Um, especially as it relates to these late term pregnancies, because it was abortion, of course, is a very hot issue among, among people to debate. When does life begin and all that? But I, yeah. I guess I, I guess I thought we were, I guess I thought we were more in agreement as a society that third trimester basically fully developed babies at that point qualify as an individual human life that's worthy of protection. But that doesn't seem like the standard anymore. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's been wild to watch. I don't I don't really understand the perspective, to be honest. Right. I mean. I was, I was the same as you a lot of my life. I was pro-choice, pro-choice, pro-choice. And then I, I became a Christian, and obviously that flipped. Mm-hmm. But but what I've noticed as well, when you actually look at it from, from like this marijuana one, uh, is these issues become a gateway for other issues to be brought up. And also doing history, I've noticed that that's a tactic that – totalitarian society or totalitarian leaders have taken as it's step by step by step. Yeah. I think it can become really dangerous. Well, you see this on a whole bunch of issues. You see this on guns, of course, in the U S they try to do these incremental changes and they always act like it's going to be this tiny little change, but of course it's in pursuit to, uh, you know, much, much broader things like confiscations or outright bannings. You see this in all sorts of issues. I used to uh, one of the big issues for me when I was younger that I really cared about a lot was um, was gay marriage, marriage equality, because I had gay friends, you know, and I always thought, well, this is dumb. Like they should be able to have the same legal rights that that I have. And I still believe in that to this day. But I remember thinking at the time that the people who opposed it with their slippery slope talk about oh this is going to lead to this and it's going to lead to that at the time i ridiculed those people because i didn't see why one would necessarily lead to the other but as we've seen in that case too it's like okay now we have legal equality and we have for x amount of years in the u.s four years now or however long it's been but that's not the stopping point you know there's not that was the point for me as a progressive where i kind of wipe my hands and say okay legal equality now we can move on and do something else but that's not the way a lot of believers of the progressive ideology operate. They have to find the next injustice, the next barrier to conquer. It has to, there always has to be an oppressor and oppressed, and they've always got to go after some form of oppression to conquer next until they keep getting into weirder and weirder territory. Um, And they keep trying to justify things that probably shouldn't be justified, you know? Right. And and what I also find is when, when the left push for this kind of stuff for more equality, for example, is that they find themselves actually getting the result of much less equality. And and we see this in Sweden with the wage gap, and we see this here in New Zealand with, uh, well, we see it kind of in New Zealand with the way that they talk about 
the treatment of the Māori today versus before. And we see that uh, that their perspective of how we treat them now seems to even be worse than how we treated them before. And I just find that yeah. an interesting tidbit with um, with the left is they kind of get more and more oppressed as the less and less oppressed they get, you know? Well, and of course it's so results-oriented. Equality to them, almost universally, as far as I can tell, means equality of outcome as opposed to opportunity. And right. so for for people people like me and maybe you, if you share my perspective, legal equality matters to the extent that the state exercises authority over all of us. To that extent, I don't want the state unjustly exercising authority unfairly over someone because of race, gender, sexual orientation, right. those kind of things. But that doesn't mean that every single person <clears throat> is equal in every way. In fact, mostly every person is unique. Every person has their own individual talents, things they're great at, things they're terrible at, uh, things in which they excel, things in which they are God awful. And, and I'm the same way, you know, it's, it's uh, so of course, in a free society where everyone is free to maximize the talents they have at their disposal and do the best with them that they can, you will not get equal outcome. That will never happen. Uh, the other the other aspect of this that's interesting is like to the extent we mostly have equality before the law in this country with maybe some small nuanced examples where, you know, maybe you have some unequal uh, legal application in, in, in isolated places. But generally, the law does not discriminate in this country. And even under those circumstances, you still don't have equal outcomes. So what do they do? It's they're going after basically opinion. Now, it's not just enough to say. Well, before the law, you'll you'll be equal. You won't have the law unf unfairly applied to you. Now it's everybody also has to have a positive opinion of me. That seems to be right. the standard that we're going with now. You will think I'm very cool in addition. And of course, the only way that you regulate equality before ev everyone else's opinions is to start regulating their opinions, start regulating their speech. And if you can't do it by government force, you'll do it by trying to apply economic pressure you'll go after their banks you'll go after their financial support and we see this all the time it's like the the use of the government hand has almost run its course and they're trying to find other methods of coercion to browbeat people into their worldview right yeah well and the thing is with equal equality of outcome i was watching i can't remember what the channel was called but it was a libertarian channel and it explained it perfectly. With, with, with equality of outcome, you cannot have equality of opportunity, and with equality of opportunity, you cannot have equality of outcome. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I can't remember what this called. Liberty, liberty. I can't remember. Um, I think Stefan Moll, you might have had affiliations there, but mm -hmm. um, anyway. Um, what about the 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 wall? Because that's a big like. I think a lot of people here in New Zealand, when they hear the wall, it's kind of an icky subject, you know? Hmm. It's like, ooh, don't talk about it. Yeah. Well, I, I saw a news uh, piece about... The only thing I know about New Zealand is it's an island that's close to Australia, and you're called Kiwis, which I assume means maybe you have the kiwi birds there or the fruit or something like that. I don't know why you guys are called Kiwis, to be honest. But, uh... It's just a, a derogatory term because we have the kiwi bird and the kiwi fruit. Okay. Well, I like the kiwi fruit quite a lot. I think they're great. Uh, but I but I turned on the news like maybe a few months ago, and your is it prime minister? Is that the term? Yes, yes. Your prime minister 
was on American News because one, she's a female prime minister and two, she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. So this is like, I mean, this is intersectional heaven. She's a pregnant woman who's the leader of a country. (laughs) And she made a comment on there that really, really bugged me because she sort of virtue signaled. And I don't know anything about her. I don't know what her politics are. All I all I know is this interview. But she made a comment about how, well, in New Zealand, we don't build walls, you know, kind of tossing shade at Donald Trump and us Americans and people who support the wall specifically. And I'm thinking like, yeah, you also have an ocean. You also have an ocean on all sides. So I don't necessarily I mean, that that's that's a pretty functional wall, I would say, of sorts. Uh, We don't really we don't we don't really have problems with illegal like we we still have illegal immigration, but it's not to the extent as it is in America. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the cases of people like rafting to Australia and maybe New Zealand and that kind of thing. Right. I think think more our problem is us wanting to bring in uh, criminal refugees from Australia. That's our problem. What what does that mean, criminal refugees? Are they refugees because they're criminals or they're refugees who just are criminals? (laughs) No. So Australia has this island where they send criminals and it's populated by... Now, Kiwis is populated by Australians and that kind of stuff. It's kind of interesting because uh, Australia was originally an island for criminals, wasn't it? They just made, basically made a mini Australia <laughs> yeah, for their own criminals? All right. um, but anyway, they, so Jacinda and the Labour Party here, they wanted to bring in these, um, these criminals because they're being treated unfairly or something. Um, because they have an island and it's not sanitary as New Zealand prisons, which, by okay. the way, New Zealand prisons, we're allowed TVs in our New Zealand prisons, in the actual cell. So, um, But, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what uh, they were touting. Is it's, it's inhumane to treat these people like this. Huh. Okay. I mean, to get back to your original question, are you asking like the status of the wall, or like my uh, my opinion of it, or or what's kind of your angle? Well, how do you, how do you believe, even if you believe there needs to be a wall or not, how do you believe that the immigration problem is solved, like the illegal immigration? Well, I th- I think first and foremost you got to secure the border, and I don't think that the wall is is a. a comprehensive solution that is to say i don't think the wall will solve the problem by itself but i also think it it stands to reason that a physical barrier is part of a solution i mean we we have a serious problem in this country of of thousands i don't know what the figure is per year but we're talking at least thousands of people uh, you know and, and when i say that i mean like tens of thousands hundreds of thousands or more coming across the southern border illegally each and every year now, and then, of course, it, it creates it creates problems with assimilating that many immigrants, but it also undercuts the wages of the American worker. If these people are willing to work under the table for wages far below what American workers will work for, we have security concerns where we've had, you know, people debate the rate of, of crime of, of illegal immigrants. You can have that debate. To me, it's irrelevant because these people don't have a right to be here. So even one case like Kate Steinley in San Francisco getting murdered or um, or Molly Tibbetts in Iowa getting murdered. Those are two cases too many. I don't care what the rate is because those people don't have a right to be here. Therefore, they don't have the freedoms that we afford our citizens that create circumstances for murder in the first place. Uh, so there's, I mean, there's all kinds of problems associated with it. We have to get a handle on it. So my, 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 uh, view on immigration is we, we've got to stop the flow first and 
worry about who's here illegally second. I think that's the other big piece of the debate is if you can slow down the flow of people or ideally stop the flow of people, what do you do about the potentially up to 30 million people who are here in this country illegally right now? Do you offer a path to citizenship? Do you deport? What do you do to me? There's there's room for debate there. I can see like as a philosophical matter, I can see why people would say you must deport. They have no right to be here as a practical matter. I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to round up tens of millions of people and deport them without instances of violence. How do you do this reliably? What's the cost of doing this kind of thing? So. Uh, so anyway, like the, I, I think the wall is part of this solution because you got to slow down the flow of people first. Right. And if you don't, you got, I mean, we're going to, we're going to continue to have serious problems in this country associated right. with illegal immigration. Well, I mean, you said about the figures and it doesn't matter. I think like I'm with you. It doesn't like if there's one murder, that's evidence enough that illegals need to go. But I think these figures matter because it chops to the left. And when I say left, I don't necessarily even mean a liberal. I mean like the fringe of the left side of the spectrum. It chops them and then they start to move more and more to the right, not necessarily on the right, but more and more towards it. And I was researching and I used the 20 million figure for my research Mm -hmm. um, and found that 5.7% of the population amended for how many people are uh, illegally here who aren't in the census. Um, um, so 5.7% of the population are illegal uh, immigrants. And in the U.S. or in specific states? In the U.S. alone. Wow. that's If that's true, that's... Well, I guess that's not that crazy because the high estimate I've seen... Yeah, I guess that's right in line with some of the higher estimates I've seen, actually. So that's possible. Right. But the the murder rate, because you can get like you can get the murder rate over the last, I, I done twenty seventeen, um, twenty sixteen, and I averaged them because I couldn't find the the actual murder rate for twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. um, and so I averaged them about eighteen thousand, um, and so I found out that twenty two percent of the murder rate, it, are illegal immigrants as well. 22% of the overall U.S. murder rate? 22%. I, I got to see that if that's... I mean, I'm not doubting it. I just... I got to... That that would be insanely high if that's true. Right. I, I absolutely agree with, with you there. And I was like, wait, how are people not... See, like, Donald Trump, I think, should should obviously get the proper research. This was me just sitting at one night just researching the numbers and... Do you remember what sources you used? What what data sets? Uh, sure. I, I used um, the 20, obviously the 20 million that had been touted. And now it's like 22 million, some say 30 million. But I thought 20 million was nice enough anyway, because even the left says 11 million and they stick with the 11 million. Um, so I say 20 million to be nice to them. And, um, and also the figures I used for the murder, I used the 2016 murder rate and the 2017 murder rate and average them overall, which came around 17,400. But I added, like I just rounded it to 18,000. So it's actually probably a little bit more when you do the literal, um, the literal 
percentages. Hmm. Yeah, I'd have to take a look at it. This is this is news to me. Right. And also the serious crime rate that's including murder, sexual uh sexual crimes and and assault of any kind. Mm-hmm. That's about twenty percent. Yeah, this is. Uh, I, I see so much conflicting information, and I, I haven't taken a close look myself, so I don't really know who to believe. Like on the one side, what? I hear I hear these citations all the time. Well, they actually commit less crime than the population overall, um, which to me is nonsense because by virtue of illegally crossing the border, one hundred percent of illegal immigrants are criminals. And then, what? and then if you mean if you mean crimes after crossing the border. Fair enough, but but I guess I haven't done the deep dive because I'm unwilling to grant their point. You know, right. it's it's like I said earlier. I don't care if it if if they're saints as soon as they cross over. The point is, we have sovereignty. We we reserve the right to vet who's coming in and who doesn't. And yeah. even if they're coming in and doing a great job contributing to the American economy and all that, that's fine. Um, it's not fine. What I mean is, they need to be checked. You know, I guess I'm glad that they may or may not be committing crime in that scenario. But the point is, you don't get you don't have the right to just come in right. without following well, the legal process and without getting the permission to do so. Well, isn't the basically the um, the curriculum to get into America is basically find a job and have a place to live. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, um, it's not that, and, and it's it, the bar is even lower depending on where you're from. Of course, we still have the diversity visa lottery where we nonsensically just hand out visas to countries that are underrepresented in merit-based evaluations of other immigrants. So it's literally just a program that says, based on merit, <laughs> based on merit evaluation, these countries are underrepresented. Let's just throw a few visas over there for diversity, even though. The reason those countries are underrepresented is because they're not providing immigrants that uh, display merit, you know, that that yeah. are able to compete with the rest of them. Well, that's another thing is like, how do you do immigration? Because I think the way that we have done immigration for the, when I say we, I mean the West yeah. have done immigration for a very long time is kind of, I will say it's not. Um, a very good system because we get these like we get these people from you know the west and then we say well we virtue signal and say that's not good enough we need to go to africa and we need yeah to... exactly right i think that maybe signing contracts with with the country where you actually get a benefit um, from that country let's say you go okay we'll bring in ten thousand immigrants from your country uh or not even cap it but just say that's as many as we will bring in yeah and then get say twenty million dollars from that country for that contract. Yeah, I mean maybe there's something there, but yeah, to your point, there's a lot of immigration, legal immigration in the United States too. That I think the jury's still out on whether or not that is uh, beneficial to this country. Now, I I'm of the opinion that there are a lot of people across the globe who are talented, who are highly skilled, who would make this country a better place if they came here and I, I would like an immigration policy that seeks those people out, identifies them, vets them and allows them to come in and, um, and build business and wealth here. And we don't have, we don't have a, uh, an immigration system right now that does exclusively that we have the kind of system where you're talking uh, that, that I was talking about earlier, where for some reason we decide that people with very little to offer 
should be given some sort of weird preference to come in as well. And to the point that you're making, I don't know necessarily what benefit that provides the United States. I'd like to see some data on that. When you like, what, what is the contribution of, you know, each year's round of diversity waiver, uh, diversity visa waivers? Uh, like what sort of economic impact is that making for the United States? What sort of tangible benefit is that providing? And if the answer is none or very little, then I mean, I would be in favor of eliminating that program altogether, but if you're going to keep it to your point, maybe the answer is you at least get some sort of payment or some, some benefit for providing the opportunity to these people you know what i mean right yeah, yeah. we've got like five minutes left so i just want to jump to to guns right now sure um because i've seen that places like uh so the the what was it the i can't remember what it's called where you have your gun and kind of turn they say it turns it into a machine gun but it doesn't really um oh the bomb stocks bomb stocks yeah yeah and I was watching that, and you know, as they start putting on more regulation, because we're highly reg- like we're not regulated to what we can use or anything, but to get a gun is extremely difficult here, hmm. gun license. So, so I mean, it, we can have. When you say extremely difficult, what makes it so tough? Well, if you if they have any kind of idea that you want to use it for defense at all, they will not give you a license. <laughs> so it's like hunting oh, only or something, hunting or like, only. huh? That's so strange because it's like, I mean, here in the U.S., the Second Amendment is is all about defense. Hunting, It's I, I get a kick when people say, well, that gun's not for hunting. First off, almost any gun is for hunting, circumstances or situation or game depending. But second off, hunting is not the philosophical basis for the Second Amendment. So I don't care. Like, I'm not a hunter. Um, that said, I'm not anti-hunting either. But I just don't hunt. And I am very much, uh, I mean, there are a lot of firearms in my house and I'm very much a pro second amendment guy. It has nothing to do with hunting, you know? So it's weird to hear that that would be the justification from the state's perspective. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of scary as well because it's like, well, I mean, I'm not saying that labor would do it, but I mean, let's look at from an, like a right wing perspective. What if someone on the right wing comes up and that's a solitarian? Just to give the left a little bit of leeway. Yeah, or Donald Trump, the guy they hate right yeah, now. What if yeah. Donald Trump? Yeah, that's another thing. It's like they want police to have guns in America, but not the people. Right. Well, police are racist, but only they should have guns. Trump is Hitler, so give him all your guns. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm with uh, America in this one. I'm like, bring the uh, second and first and second amendment over here. I'll take that gladly and apply it to our law. Um, but yeah, it's to do hunting only. And Hmm. if you use force that is over the capacity of the person attacking you, you can also be done with manslaughter. Hmm. So if someone like, um, is punching you or something like kicking your ass and you were to shoot that person, then you would be criminally liable. Yeah, absolutely. Like here in the U.S., the sta- it varies by state, but in my state, the standard is serious bodily injury. So a felony, a felony assault in the state of Montana is serious bodily injury, and there's like a there's a more specific definition to that in terms of like the the damage that's actually done to you. But generally speaking, like kicking someone's ass with a f- with your fists 
is serious bodily injury. So if you have reason to believe that a person is going to commit serious bodily injury against you, and of course they have to be in your immediate proximity, they have to be moving toward you. This has to be something that's happening to you. It can't just be a guy across the street saying, I hate you, I'm going to beat you up. It's got to be more immediate than that. But generally speaking, if, if someone is committing felony assault against you or about to commit felony assault against you, you can use deadly force. And to me, that right. seems like a, a pretty reasonable standard. I, why do I have to wait until someone's attacking me? For all I know, he has a knife. For all I know, he has a gun. For all I know, I, I don't know what he has. So why would I wait for him to start beating me up before I right. defend myself? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. No. Yeah. And like being in that kind of environment, um, I've now actually gone really extreme with this with this um, idea of guns, and I'm just like, I don't even want criminals to not be allowed guns. Like, just let everyone have guns, because the marketplace will say, you know, they're not going to shoot people. Well, it's interesting. Generally speaking, I don't have a problem in the U.S. of restricting specifically violent criminals from getting firearms. The Constitution and, and our founding documents say generally that you will not be deprived life, liberty, and property without due process of law. So if you've been convicted of a, of a serious violent crime, yes, you are being deprived liberty and property, but it is through due process of law. So I have less of a problem with that. But I do think about this like in, like you can't own a gun, not just like, I mean, you can't possess a gun, period, in this country if you're a felon of any kind. But that could be like financial crime. You know, you might have, um, like, if you're, I don't know, if you did some Bernie Madoff stuff or whatever, like, if you defrauded some people with investments, that's not to say that those things are cool. They're not. Those should be crimes. That said, do I think that, like, even Bernie Madoff, who, again, is, is a guy who sucks and defrauded a lot of people, I'm not convinced that he should be barred from having a gun to defend himself, though. Right. Uh, I don't have reason to believe that he's more of a risk to the public if he's armed than anybody else. And again, this excludes right. people who have committed assaults, rapes, murders, all that stuff. I agree. They shouldn't be. They, they've forfeited their right to be armed at that point in my assessment. But but for stuff that's nonviolent, like why should a nonviolent crime prevent you um, from being able to defend yourself? I'm not convinced on that, to your point. Well, the, yeah. And the reason I... I feel that way that strongly about crime is especially now when it's quite likely that that speech could start becoming criminally um, enforceable, you know, like if. Yeah. Well, and that's the angle I go with in defending the second a lot. Now I'll defend the second on its own merits, but every once in a while you're talking to a person who just, I don't even want to say has an irrational fear of guns because honestly, I used to be more of that perspective. I was just more reluctant, hesitant about guns because I didn't understand them and I didn't understand the law that exists around them. So if I ever have to uh, try to, to persuade somebody who is a little more fearful of guns generally, I think that's an effective angle to go with is like, listen, as long as this is part of the constitution, if you accept chipping away at this, Little by little, if you accept all these restrictions and rules and stuff about what's supposed to be your God-given right, there is nothing to stop your right to speech from being basically uh, afforded to you based on the state's permission slip or your right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure being 
chipped away at, regulated, you know, a privilege reserved for the few as opposed to a right. You go, go up and down the Bill of Rights and say, if you're comfortable with chipping away at the second, you are creating a precedent for chipping away at the rest of these. And that's why I have respect for, um, for the people who are anti-gun who just come out and say, listen, we want to repeal the second. At least I disagree with them wholeheartedly, but at least they're consistent. The, the people that drive me the most nuts are like, listen, I'm pro Second Amendment, but here's how I'm going to here's how I'm going to whittle away at everything that it means. And here's but, how I'm going yeah. to give it the toilet paper treatment legislatively. Those people drive me nuts. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, sure. I would love to have you back uh, another time, maybe. Sure. Um, yeah, this has been great. Thank you for joining me. And, of course. Uh, Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. Have a great day.